something too hungry for more, an Epicurean's Dilemma, and I'm your host, Trish Gloss. Today's episode sponsored by Tap and Vine 559, the place to eat, meat, and drink in Southern Oregon. Randy Ullum on the podcast today. He's the wine master at Kendall Jackson and recently named American Wine Legend in Wine Enthusiast Wine Star Awards. And after chatting with him, it is easy to see why he was honored as a true icon in American wine industry. We talk about his beginnings and growing up with a dad who loved to make wine as a hobby. He says, really, though, it was when he was exploring wine country in Chile that the light bulb went off and he decided, yes, this is what I wanted to do. So back to school, back in the States, he studied viticulture and enology. Working in Ohio and upstate New York, and then Sonoma called. He worked at Deloach Vineyards for just over a decade and then landed the job at Kendall Jackson, and he's been there ever since. We're talking about three decades now. We talk about the innovative initiatives he helped put into place, the perfecting of the Chardonnay that Kendall Jackson is known for, why he loves this company so much, and honestly, it's so easy to see after all of these years, the passion for winemaking hasn't gone anywhere. Here's Randy Allen. Has anyone ever told you you have a Sam Elliott vibe? Yeah, they have. Okay, I figured. <laughs> Definitely. It's the stash, probably. It is, yeah. Yeah, that's the gray hair. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Well, hey, Sam Elliott is a huge compliment, at least in my book. I love that man. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, Randy Ullum, thank you for being here with me today on this uh, this little podcast that could. I so appreciate it. I'm so excited to chat with you. Wine master at Kendall Jackson, just named American Wine Legend and Wine Enthusiast Wine Star Awards. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's pretty shocking and surprising and, uh, for me. Yeah, you heard Quite about honor. this honor in November. I mean, before we dive into it, what your first thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't know. I just couldn't. Uh, I, was, I was speechless, basically. It's completely speechless. Uh, Adam called me and told me about that. And I, I said, what? And he said, no, no, no. You know, you're it. We're, no nominations. It's just you. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I said, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But I mean, this is. This is a, you're a true icon in the American wine industry. That's really what this honor means. That's what it stands for. I, and I appreciate that uh, enormously uh, from the bottom of my heart, for sure. All right. We are going to chat um, first, where are you from originally? And I do want to note you are, um, you're on vacay right now. So lucky you, I'm sure Harvest probably kicked your booty. So you took a little vacation. That's right. Yeah. Every year after harvest, I try to uh, spend a week in some warm climate and then a week in Colorado skiing, you know, after the first of the year. So I'm in the warm climate part right now, uh, specifically down in Cabo San Lucas, I, where it's quite warm. Very warm <laughs> and probably well-deserved, uh, well-deserved vacation. Um, Mr. Winemaster, where are you from originally? So I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I lived there for about five years. And then uh, we moved, uh, my family, uh, to Lexington, Massachusetts mm -hmm. for about six years there. And from there, we moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I graduated uh, high school. And it was probably there where, you know, I watched my dad make um, 
uh, wine out of grape juice in the basement, you know, in the five, five gallon jugs. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And then, of course, the drinking ages were a lot lower then. So actually experimenting, as one might say, uh, it with uh, beer, wine and such, you know, and in high school, it wasn't really that bad, but I, I liked and learned I liked wine more than I liked the uh, fizzy beer. Hmm. So I was kind of an odd man out with a few friends, and and we really enjoyed wine. And then when I uh, I was also a rock hound, and so I thought I would um, try to get a degree in mining engineering. And so there were three great schools for that. Uh, one was the University of Arizona, the other was the University of Utah, and the other was in Colorado, the School of Mines. And I was an avid skier through junior high and high school, like a very avid skier. And so I picked the school that had the best snow, mm. and that's Utah, the driest, deepest powder. And so that's where I went to to start my journey um, in uh um, mining engineering with a, with a, that was my major. My minor was in skiing <laughs> and it got me in trouble with my dad because I continued, you know, evolving in, in the wine world of different wines to drink and, you know, started with like farm, strawberry Hill, and then Lancers and Matus and then up to Almaden and, and, and on South. And then I ended up going down to Chile uh, about a year after I got into um, the University of Utah, uh, the main reason was my, my I was spending more time on my minor than my major. Mm-hmm. My dad really liked that. So I elected to follow my minor versus my major and continued my skiing endeavors in Utah for a while. And then when we all ran out of snow there, uh, what does one do? Will you go to South America? So I ended up, you know, I'd always seen pictures of Portillo in the ski magazines. And I said, man, I want to go there. And so that's where uh, I and a friend of mine, we went to down to Chile with not knowing any Spanish or what was going on or anything and hopped on a plane from Mexico city to Santiago and, and learned real quick that um, we should have learned <laughs> and known a little bit of Spanish and we should have done our homework on, on the, uh, politics going on there Mm. at the time and didn't even know but fell in love with the fact that Chile was a huge wine producing country I had no idea about that then so I thought I'd like died and gone to heaven so here I am in this area and uh, thinking oh my gosh (laughs) there's wine everywhere and you're expected to drink wine exactly well back up quickly with dad I mean was wine obviously important for him if he's making it I mean right it, it was right. a, he, a big deal. Bobby, he made he he enjoyed wine. He enjoyed you know he didn't drink beer either. But he you know they would we our family was used to having a little cocktail before dinner, and then some wine with dinner or mm-hmm. just wine before dinner. And he enjoyed making it because we are in you know near northeast Pennsylvania. There's a great growing area there along Lake Erie, and so he would uh, go up there you know buy grape juice and bring it on down and turn it into wine and and bottle it up. Was it good? And he, it was good. I mean, for from my taste, then I thought it was great. <laughs> Dad, this is delicious. Yeah. Um, but all kinds of you know, varieties for sure. So you're in you're in Chile. I mean, do you is this where the light bulb goes off for you? Where you're like, wine. This is what I want to do. 
Yeah, not on the first day, but I ended up, it was a, supposed to be a, a, you know, a 30 day trip to Chile and then 60 days working, working our way back up to America. And I ended up staying three years there and had completely fell in love with it. There were a lot of reasons for staying. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity you know, to live through you know, a, a country that was having financial problems, you know, thousand percent inflation, a democratically elected socialist government heading to communism, to, basically total chaos. The wild west of the world was going on there, and I and I had a, an opportunity to partake in that. And then, in the in, during all that, I was you know exposed to all these different wines and, and great food and great people. And we ended up renting a little farm down in the south of Chile, and our neighbors had vineyards and were making wine with equipment that you'd find today in a museum, but nonetheless making, making wine and you know, learning all about that and, and the good food. And then I met, you know, a family, the Ferrer family, and they brought me, you know, into their fold and taught me everything about fine wine, fine food, wines of the world. And I thought, wow, this is great. And, and there was a research uh, station, you know, nearby in the South of Chile that kind of considered themselves the same as uh, Sonoma you know, in their degree days. And so I thought, well, that was great. We could try all this stuff there. And then when it was time to leave, um, which, you know, they had a bet, this was, you know, 50 years ago. And, and I was there during the, the uh, sort of the communist era, mm -hmm. socialist communist era with Allende for two years and three months. And then there was the coup and everything changed. And, and it was a military coup. So it wasn't as much fun to stay there. So I stayed nine months and then left and decided somehow I, I need to figure out how to get paid to drink wine and enjoy wine. Yes. And so that's, I really went off and I had to face reality and come back to America and get a real job. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I converted my, my plan from mining engineering, which really helped on the soil side of things in the vineyards to enology and viticulture and, and, and it's, it's not really even work. I mean, it is work, but it's just, it's fun. Yeah. It's thoroughly an enjoyment of, of life. And you, you know, decided, I'm very... well, yeah. And you decided to go back to school because again, this was, this was the path you were like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. So back to school, you went to continue this career. Okay. Yeah. Very focused where I was messing around skiing first round. I was like, you know, taking, I think, you know, the normal course load would have been like 24 credits or what have you. And I was doing, you know, 35, 36, ludicrous amount, but I was focused yeah. and raced that. And then my first job was actually in, uh, in Ohio, mm -hmm. where, where I was going to school then. And I worked a year and up in Madison, Ohio, along Lake Erie. And then, and then actually I came out to uh, California looking for my, you know, a regular real job on the coast. And, and was offered a job at actually back at Buena Vista at the time. But being from the Northeast or the Midwest, sort of, um, where everything's green and lush and going to California. And at that point, you know, that was in the 70s. And, and they were having a, uh, uh, well, I guess it would be not the late 70s, early 80s, because mm -hmm. I went out in 81. But this was 76. So they were having, you know, the fifth year of a five-year drought and everything was brown and dirty and dusty and pretty much, you know, not nice looking. And I thought, who in their right mind would live here? So I went back to uh, upstate New York and took a job there for five years and then realized, well, need to kind of suck it up and face the fact of reality that one needs to 
to move on and, and be where more of the noble varieties are grown, even though you can grow them to a degree in New York, they tend to get frozen all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, went back to California and, and uh, interviewed at a few places. And the Deloach family hired me out West uh, Sonoma County in 1981. And I moved out there and, you know, those dusty dirt brown hills all of a sudden over time became the golden hills of California. Yeah. Stunning. To date. Yeah. The stunning hills of California for sure. Did you, when, I mean, cause essentially this is what you want to do. So for you, was it like, I, I need to be in California. I need to be in Sonoma because that's where, like you said, that's where these noble varieties are being grown. I mean, was that like, like it was like Disneyland for you. Well, it was. I mean, I could have probably worked anywhere in the state, but mm-hmm. Sonoma just felt better. You know, I had interviewed in, in Napa and, and, and even down in Monterey and, and Santa Barbara. But Sonoma County, you know, being close to San Francisco at the time, uh, and it's just sort of more countrified, uh, different appellations, more sort of down to earth farming type of, a, of, a, of an area okay. there. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. It's just nice. And so the Deloach uh, Vineyards was right in the heart of the Russian River Valley. And you're, you know, next to all the redwoods, you've got a river, you've got the coast nearby, you can grow pretty much anything in that county. And so I thought, well, this is great. And so I moved to very close to the winery you know, in West uh, Santa, West Santa Rosa, and then now live up in Healdsburg, still the heart of the, uh, the wine area. And at Deloach, I mean, I know now they're sort of known for Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Zinfandel. Was that was that the same when you were there? It was, yeah. We 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 were renowned for uh, Pinot, as you say, uh, Chardonnay, and Zinfandel. And then when I was there, we created the what was called the OFS tier, kind of like a Grand Reserve or Special Selection. Uh, our finest selection is what it was. Where we did it almost like a vineyard designate. It was for the Zinfandels, but we did that also for the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir. Basically, our best of the best uh, was what we were doing there. And everything was from the Russian River. We did make some cab from Dry Creek, uh, the Dry Creek area and upper Russian River. But we were more of a, board, a Burgundy house plus the Zin. And that continues today. It was sold. Well, the Deloche family sold it to the Boisset group. And they are continuing on with a huge focus on, on Pinot and Chardonnay. What did you learn there specifically, you think, that's helped you, you know, even today at Kendall Jackson? Well, I learned, and this is kind of why, why Jess was looking for someone like me. Um, I had a, I loved Chardonnay and still love it to this day. And we were making, we basically, the Deloach family and the Jackson family started out about the same year in reality okay. uh, on the with marketing wine. And, you know, we were all barrel fermented French oak for our, for our Pinot and Chardonnay at Deloach and, and then used American oak for the Zinfandel. But we, we made a very rich, you know, lush, unctuous Chardonnay that, that was pleasing and easy uh, to drink. And similar to what Jess was doing, 
you know, very rich, even though he wasn't at 100% barrel ferment at the time, but you know, along those lines. So we made a wine that you didn't need a PhD to enjoy. I mean, it looked good. It had a nice golden color, regardless of where you're working, and where I was working, and it had all the aromatics. You didn't have to, you know, do a deep dive into the glass to figure out what you were smelling. And then it was one that tasted well and, and filled your palate and had a long finish. I mean, that's the name of the game is, you know, to present something that's fun and easy to drink and, and that everyone can enjoy. Do you look back sometimes because, I mean, I, I feel like you are really on the forefront of a lot of, a, a lot of first for even Deloach and, Kendall Jackson, do you look back sometimes and think like, oh, those were the good old days or the good old days right now? I'd, I'd say the good old days have lasted about <laughs> about 40 years. Mm. <laughs> Just, you know, changing. I mean, the only the only thing when I look back, I mean, you know, there was there's, of course, size, but everything we did at both places was all done in small lots, small lot fermentations, even to this day at Kendall Jackson. That's that's the way it's done, and so I think just the good old days is is it's just are the good old current days. Mm-hmm. I'd say old with you know O L without the O L D part, just the good old. <laughs> exactly, exactly. When you were um, at Deloach and then even in the beginning at at Kendall Jackson. Did, did dad ever, was dad ever in your head? I mean, you know, cause he really did, I feel like plant this seed for you, like making wine as a hobby, but you know, was dad in your head at all saying like, as, as far as like anything that you remember him doing or saying? Well, it was, you know, we were, we were coming at this from different perspectives. He was looking at it as a hobby. Right. He went to MIT, he has like a PhD in optical optics you know making lenses and telescopes and doing stuff for the you know the government that we could never talk about back then (laughs) and then he sees this i go on you know off off track into the sort of the farming agricultural world and shaking his head but you know now he's very proud and very happy and and has seen the light and it all (laughs) goes but it all goes back to him and his little five gallon carboys Exactly. Yeah. And I just, I just feel like it's so, um, serendipitous, I guess that, you know, here's dad making wine as a hobby and then here's Randy just named American wine legend. So I don't know. It's a sweet connection, I guess. It it is. It's a very sweet and kind connection for sure. So you were at Deloach, uh, I mean, how long about? A little over 12 years. Yeah. Okay. Cause then, then go ahead. But then in 1993 mm-hmm. is when I started with just Jackson, the Jackson family wines. And, and in the, he approached you, oh, right? Oh, he did. Yeah. He had actually approached me a couple times. And um, by this time I was ready to make, make the move. And I, I wasn't really sure, you know, in the beginning, but he put in a, a, a hook that I couldn't refuse because all the time I'd been in California, everyone knew I loved Chile. I went down to Chile every year, every other year, just to you know maintain my old friendships down there. And Jess was down there. Sometimes we never crossed paths, but we were in the same winery within a week or two of each other at various times. And so he realized that. And so he asked me to come on board 
and he had three assignments for me, three projects. And the first was uh, to create a brand from the Santa Barbara area uh, called uh, Camelot. We've since sold that brand, but Camelot. And then to reopen the Ed Mead's winery and get that brand going again up in the Anderson Valley of Mendocino and then go down to Chile and start a brand and you know acquire land and build a uh, build a winery at some point there and that was the Chilean part that got me and I thought oh my god you, you're gonna pay me to go down there and do this <laughs> and I, I said that sign me up and so that's what started it all and then right quick you know all of this happened within three or four months of my coming on board and then he wanted to expand and around the world and so he had just recently purchased the land in Italy so I became the international wine guy for him and managed that. Uh, we had just uh, acquired a little property in France for that be, has become our stave mill. So we're half owners of a stave mill in France. So I was managing that. And then he wanted to continue around the world. And so he said, well, let's go to Argentina. And off to Argentina, we went and set up the brand and uh, tapis and bought, you know, thousands of acres of land there and subsequently sold that because of the um, po politics there and the financial situation, but continued into Australia and, and started, did all the research all over Australia and picked the spot, the flag, you know, to put KJ or Jackson Family Wines there uh, in the McLaren Vale area. And then we were working in France and then we were doing stuff in the north of Italy and the south of Italy, all that in the first couple of years. And then he asked me to take over KJ, which is you know, the real reason he had, he had hired me. It was just to kind of get me in the fold. And then he asked me to take over the Kendall Jackson brand, which of course was a lot larger than all these other smaller brands everywhere. And so I had to kind of turn them over to the people that I had hired in most all of those places, uh, except for Chile. I still am, am in charge of Chile just because that's my little passion down there with Don Hartford and I. You know, we have our new wine called Dakel, D-A-K-E-L. Uh, that's just Pinot and Chardonnay from down there. But then, as I was saying, he asked me to take over uh, the KJ brand as, as wine master and, and off to the races we went. And that was many years ago. We were a lot smaller then, and we only had one other brand in the in in, in the gang. There it was Kendall Jackson and, and Cambria. That was it. Wow. And now we have so many more. And we were buying land, developing vineyards, buying vineyards. Uh, we were building wineries or buying wineries because we were growing so fast, and we knew, you know, that we needed to have. It was better to have our be in charge of as much of the process as possible. So that meant, you know, have as many of your own grapes as you possibly can, do as much of the fermentation, if not all of it, as you can, mm -hmm. so that you're completely in charge. If something goes awry, it's no one's fault but your own. And, and that's what we've succeeded in, in doing. We've kind of backed off a little bit on the grape part. We're down, you know, we're running about 80% 80, 80 internal fruit. Um, depending on the variety, but we're 100%, um, you know, produced and fermented in our own in our own properties, which is great. Yeah, we no. have all the. He he had a vision. 
he sure did. And his vision, you know, a lot of people couldn't quite understand or believe in his, his vision, but he wanted to make a wine, you know, it started with the Chardonnay that, you know, the world, every, everyone could, uh, could afford an affordable luxury. It's basically what he called it, you know, at the time and we still do today, you know, a very nice killer Burgundian Chardonnay that a price that people can afford to pay. And it brings a smile to everyone's face. And that's huge in this world of wine that we're looking at, because as you know, it seems like a new winery or label or something is popping up daily, especially if you're, you know, immersed in a wine country. So uh, it just seems like, you know, he did a little ahead of his time, I think, maybe. I, I would I would say a bit. I mean, we were ahead of our time so many times. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous. You know, sometimes being ahead of your time works really well for you. Sometimes you're so far ahead that it, it doesn't work out. This is one of the ones where we were just, oh, the timing was was perfect because, you know, the world was realizing, okay, you know, what's white burgundy? Oh, it's Chardonnay. Uh, oh, what's Chardonnay? Well, it's a great variety that, you know, grows really well in California. You know, the cooler the area, the better the wine. And, and he realized that too. And so, you know, he was all about quality, no matter what, no matter who he was talking to, or we were talking to, if it was our finance department, and, you know, they're saying, well, Randy, this costs, you know, a little too much and you should do it this way. And I'd say, well, it's quality. It's all about the quality. And, you know, if we got into a bit of a discussion, you know, we, I would take the two glasses and show them to Jess and let him try it. And he always went with, with my taste because uh, we had very similar tastes and it was always take the high road, you know, we'll figure it out later, but just take that high road mm. and, and that all along. And so, you know, for, for those not too familiar with the state of California, we're along the cool coast, nothing in the central Valley or the Sierras. We love the areas that have, um, the fog. Uh, we have another sort of saying, you know, mountains, ridges, hillsides, and benches. Uh, that's where we like to grow our grapes. It's a lot harder and more expensive, but you get better flavors and uh, unfortunately lower yields, but that's what goes with better flavors sometimes. Uh, we kind of abhor or stay far away from valley floor uh, because you know it's, that's where you're talking quantity and not quality. And again, going back to the beginning, it's, it's quality prevails. And that's been a blessing for yeah. us. No, absolutely. What do you think it was about you that he was most interested in? Because you said he approached you a few times. What What do you think, what was it about you specifically? I, I think it was um, because we were making, or you know, I, we were making a, a Chardonnay that people liked in a similar style, even though I was focused you know, limited to just the Russian River Valley in Sonoma County, and he was you know, had no limits. And he, you know, there I don't know, there's probably a few people around that were making Chardonnays, but somehow he just called me, <laughs> and off we off we went. Fantastic. I was ready. He had, you know, he had, uh, he had. It was just the right thing at the right place at the right time. You know, I was ready to make a move, and he was offering. Uh, an opportunity that that I couldn't, I could not um, turn down, and I and I think he saw the you know, the Chardonnay because he challenged me with the Chardonnay. I'll go down to Santa Barbara, and I said Santa Barbara, who, why go there? 
you know, all the great Chardonnays here in the Russian River Valley. He says, oh, no, trust me, Randy. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. I'll go. And uh, did the Camelot thing down there. And, and uh, every month, I, you know, we'd cross paths. And he'd say, well, how's that Chardonnay? Well, eh, you know, it's okay. Still like that Russian River stuff. And then it's interesting because the Chardonnays from the Santa Maria bench take a little bit more time to evolve and to become, you know, that one unto their own whereas the Russian river is a little quicker. So about six months after the harvest, he, he says, so what do you think? And I said, you know, Jess, you're right. The killer area and a killer Chardonnay from down there. And uh, one of my favorite Chardonnays actually comes from down there that I love to drink, uh, but it's a, a very important part of our Vintners Reserve uh, blend. Mm -hmm. And so of course, you know, he's always right. And I had to admit <laughs> defeat. <laughs> He just smiled. It's nice to hear. So it's, it's nice to hear when you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it'll be what? 30 years you've been there. Yeah. I'm in my 30th year, 30th harvest. Um, it'll be a you know, complete 30 full years later that, uh, later, later, well, next August actually, but th I've done 30 harvests. Wow. Randy. All and that's just with Kendall Jackson in California, not counting any others. Right. Did you did you work some harvests around around the world while you were at Kendall Jackson? Yeah. To, when, when I would get these different ones going, you know, sometimes I'd stay the whole harvest, sometimes just half, sometimes I'd go, you know, for a couple of weeks several times. So I did, you know, well, when we were getting things going to, you know, make sure they're working right, uh, would do the, you know manage the harvest in Argentina and Chile, uh, Italy, and, uh, and Australia. So you could add those in, but you know, they're not really a hundred percent. So I don't really count them. Right. Staying there from start to finish. Um, we're going to continue our conversation on harvest in just a second, but first a quick message from today's sponsor. Welcome to Tap and Vine 559. The place for that drink after work. Choose from a long list of local wine, craft beers, and ciders on tap. The place for lunch or dinner. Shareable bites, fresh salads and bowls, and mouth-watering sandwiches and entrees. Come with a friend, the family, or book Tap and Vine for your next party or event. More information at tapandvine559.com. Tap and Vine 559, the place to eat, meet, and drink in Southern Oregon. So uh, love. I call it the, the ultimate love because uh, you're, you're working all year long. You know, you, you've watched or coordinated with the folks in the vineyard on the, on, on the pruning, and then you have bud break. The, the vines are growing. You're suckering you know, the head, the trunk, the bottom, the, 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 your shoot thinning where you have your seconds and tertiaries or adventition shoots growing, you gotta get rid of those and just get down to your primaries. And then you have bloom, uh, which is a wonderful time of the year if you've ever been in a vineyard uh, during bloom uh, with those little flowers, those little baby flowers and the aroma that you get is it's like perfume. It's absolutely wonderful and so very special. And then, you know, now you're off to the races because you're watching them go from, you know, the size of a pinhead uh, up to, you know, a small marble or the size of your small little finger tip there. And, and, that, and then they start changing color, uh, and, uh, which is for ration, and they start developing, 
you know, more sugar and their flavors. And then it gets to be harvest time. And I think everybody just loves that because sure, you're, you're, you know, you're working seven days a week, um, you know, any hour of the day, uh, but you're spending, at least I do, I spend, you know, the majority of my time in the, in the vineyard because I believe it all starts there. And so, you know, you've got to be out there trying the grapes, tasting the grapes, you know, getting the data from the lab to kind of help you decide where you're going to go in the first place. You're not wasting your time because we have a lot of acres and we have to kind of get things going and then sort of do the handoffs to the, to the local teams. But um, that's the important part. Okay. When do you actually pick that grape? Yeah. And all about tasting the grape over and over and over again. And then you say, okay, pick them, Dano. And off to the races you go, and you hope you made the right decision, and you have the plan already for fermentation. You know the yeast and how things are supposed to go, and mm-hmm. your barrel plan, and you know the percent new oak, what forest it comes from, what's the grain tightness, all that stuff's already basically set and 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 ready to go. So it's all based on okay, did you pick them at the right flavor? I think it's the best time of the year, and then after harvest, you're just kind of waiting you know, for them to go through the fermentation and, and the primary, which is the sugar fermentation, and then the secondary, which is the malolactic, which gives it that little kiss of butter. Don't want too much butter, but just a little bit. And then we're aging and stirring. So for you then, um, you know, this is, the <laughs> harvest is the most wonderful time of the year, but it really is one shot, right? You have one shot every year. That's what I'm saying, yeah, or implying is that you have to, you have to get that pick uh, called uh, uh, correctly because you can't. It's not like you're making vodka where you can just buy vodka, you know, alcohol all year long and and just tweak it a little bit. Or you know, it's an agricultural commodity; it only grows once a year. Yeah. And so you gotta you gotta nail it. <laughs> Do you any exceptional years, vintages that come to mind? Like just that blew you away. Boy, that's a, a great question. Um, it seems like, like, to uh, let me see, the ones something about the years that end in a seven or an odd year. So, you know, oh, uh, 97, 07, 17, 19. Okay. Great. This one, you know, that we're, you know, 21, and then you get to the, you know, the even numbered years. Well, they're all great too, but it's just, it's hard to say you know, to really pick a year. I mean, those, that's a huge generality because we have so many different varieties and so many different appellations and just a handful of counties. But, you know, one, the Knights Valley for Cabernet, you know, in 2017 could have been, the, you know, the best vintage ever where the 18 or what have you, maybe we won't go into that area because of the fires, but let's go, you know, 16 or 14 or what have you. Uh, could be the best fur cab in the Alexander Valley. Mm-hmm. So we're very diverse and where we have all these wonderful vineyards. And again, blessed that we have that to work with, thanks to Jess and everyone, you know, in the day. So it's hard to really pick, you know, a year, but those are some good vintages. It's like picking your favorite child or something. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we have wildfires here in Southern Oregon and some that have threatened vineyards in the past. And farming has a ton of risks, as I don't have to tell you that. 
Um, and that's just one of them. And I, I feel like it's definitely, it's getting more threatening year after year. It, it truly is. I mean, there's two things that, that are the most uh, challenging, I would say, out there. Uh, one is the, is the wildfire issue um, slash smoke. The other is this, this, you know, whether you believe it or not, I mean, look at the past 200 years of pictures or 100 years of pictures of the glaciers. I mean, they're all, you know, receding. Yeah. So obviously there is global warming. And, and so what's happening now is, you know, what used to be a really cool area is now just cool. And, and so things are changing out there. And, and then what we're seeing is, you know, like a, a fire can be a challenge. So can a heat wave be a tremendous challenge. And usually, you know, we've got, you know, one or two sort of heat waves or maybe a day or two or three long, you know, over the past decade. Maybe you get none, maybe you'll get one, maybe you'll get two. And you can work your way through that, kind of adjust on the fly. We had one this year that was pretty interesting. It was record breaking. It was like five days and, and there wasn't a cool spot anywhere to be found. Hmm. And it was under, it was a really hot heat wave. You know, 115 would be the average high of 120, low of 110 for a week. You know, that's that's a that's a tough one, and so you're kind of caught. You know, when you're farming these grapes in these cooler areas for the quality and the enhanced flavors you get, you also have to deal with the fact that okay, yes, it's cool and it has fog, and fog is moist, and so you have to pull leaves. You know, for the for the um, morning side you know, so that so that they will dry out a little quicker and not get powdery mildew and and then leave more leaves for shade in the afternoon and you do that or you you don't pull those leaves and you have more shade for when you have that heat spell but then you've got to deal with the risk of mildew so it's a tough it's a tough call mm-hmm. you know and we we unfortunately you know our, i i will risk um, the vineyard to heat than to mildew so that's the cards are on the table and uh and we just hope right and i've also seen too a lot of wineries around the globe changing practices with farming to be a little friendly friendlier to the earth and that's the same with kendall jackson you guys have been evolving over the last few decades when it comes to that Oh, for sure. Every single one of our vineyards is sustainably certified and we pay uh, growers a, a, a bonus or you know an upcharge if they will get theirs um, certified sustainable. We also do a lot, you know, along the same front of, uh, you know, management of the amount of water we're using both in the vineyard and in the, in, in the winery. We've cut our, wa- cut our water use more than in half, which is amazing in itself. And then, you know, it used to be people would just, you know, put five gallons of water on their vine per week. And that was that. Well, sometimes you need it and sometimes you don't. So why not? Why put it on if you don't need it? So we're managing all of that and doing a lot of work with solar power and soon wind power. But our focus right now, and I can't think of the appropriate word there. There is one that is used these days, but it has to do with you know, focusing on the earth, the, the dirt right there in the vineyard. And, and, you know, rather than always taking from the dirt a crop and this and that, it's replenishing, re- regenerative farming is the word I'm looking for. 
And that's where you're really focused on, on the soil and how to make it even better than it was when you first got your hands on that soil and that dirt. Make your dirt better. Uh, good dirt makes great wines. <laughs> and so uh, that's very important. And, you know, we want to make, you know, make, make it better in the future than it ever was in the past. And, and that is, that's the hot topic these days in, mm-hmm. in all of uh, viticulture. Well, I just feel like. So, I don't mean to interrupt. No, no. But I'm gonna, uh, to the point of, you know, putting you know, sheep out there and letting them do their thing mm-hmm. uh, to help manage the grasses and, you know, by byproducts of fertilization and, you know, even chickens for that matter. But, um, you know, it's very, it's really a, a unique science. I mean, the soil is a living at the end of the day. I might get in trouble saying this, but it's kind of like a living organism. There's a lot of microorganisms in the soil. Mm-hmm. So trying to keep that uh, happier soil uh, makes great wines too. Yes. And you can interrupt me anytime. Um, I feel like the the earth gives us so much when it comes to especially wine, right? So why wouldn't we do everything we can to make it as healthy as possible? Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, these vineyards are around, you know, for a long time. You know, you, fi- you, you figure the norm is 25 years or 30 years, mm-hmm. then you're going to have to you know, replace it. Uh, you know, of course, you have some old vines in vineyards that are 80 to 100 years old, but at some point, you know, they're going to die off. And you and you you want that soil, you know, to be to be better. Right. You know, it's not like corn and soybeans where you're alternating every other year and just pull, 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 pull. You know, we want to we want those soils. If, if we can make them better today than they were a year ago or than they were five years ago, that's a plus. Yeah, agreed. Um, so I have this wine over here, the Vintners Reserve Chardonnay, which I think so many people are familiar with. This guy, though, I'm not familiar with. This is the 85 calorie Chardonnay. Right. What? Yeah, low cal. What? <sighs> I'm going to taste it while you talk about it. Um, this is new. Okay. This oh. is new, right? It is new. It's like two years-ish new. Um, we did... Uh, We've done some research for several years on this because it's it's a lot harder to make this than to make the regular Vintners Reserve uh, by a long shot. But we try to make it uh, similar. So our when, you know between the two of them in gross generalities, we have like half the uh, grapes will come from Monterey. You know, uh, probably uh, you know a third would be from Santa Barbara, and then the remainder, which would be 15 or 20 percent, would be from Mendocino. So you have those different regions, mm-hmm. and in those different regions, you have different uh, aromatics and flavors. So, you know, the North Coast uh, Mendocino gives you your um, pear and, 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 and crisp green apple. Monterey gives you your ripe, al- ripe apple. Uh, Carneros gives you your, your oily pear. Monterey, your lemon and lime, and Santa Barbara, your tropical fruit and pineapple. So we're trying to, you know, have those be relatively similar between the low calorie and the regular Vintners Reserve. The Vintners Reserve is about 93, 95% barrel fermented. And this is barrel fermented too, but in kind of a different way. We have to um, bring in some of the grapes a little earlier in the season and ferment them relatively fast. And then kind of wait and we remove the alcohol on that first tranche and then we wait for the rest of the grapes to get you know really ripe like we normally do and then blend that that wine 
with that juice to cut our sugar levels down in half effectively. And then that's how we re-ferment. We do that fermentation then in barrels, French, all French oak. Right. It's delicious. Oh, thank you. It's very tasty and so smart. And this is also sort of something I'm seeing too, um, lower sugar wines kind of becoming a little trendy out there. Um, everybody's looking to cut the sugar, right? And I mean, wine is no exception. Exactly. Yeah, lower calorie. I mean, you can enjoy it. Uh, you know, you can drink more by the pool. <laughs> I was going to uh, say you can drink more of it. <laughs> uh, you can lose weight while you're drinking. That's on <laughs> Exactly. That's what you, that should be right there on the bottle. Lose weight while you drink me this, uh, this (laughs) delicious Chardonnay. Um, but what is it you think about the Vintners Reserve Chardonnay? You know, I know you said Jess really was looking for something that affordable luxury in, in a wine. And this is something, I mean, you cannot argue with the familiarity of the name and the label. I mean, I, I feel like Everyone knows Kendall Jackson Chardonnay. They pretty much do. Mm-hmm. And and if they don't say Kendall Jackson, they're more often than not just calling it KJ. KJ. Yeah. I want my or my mother or my family or I, you know, drink KJ. KJ all day. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Love and 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 one of the reasons is it's it's um I guess the continuity of the quality of the wine. You know, from year to year, it's, you know, you can hardly tell the difference. And mm-hmm. that's because of all the vineyards we have and that we're in charge of and you know, those ratios of flavors. And so we're not like bouncing around all over the place to sure. getting different grapes. And so that helps, you know, to maintain the consistency of it. And of course, the team, we have a great team, you know, that, that, that I lead, that we've all worked together for many, many, many years. So we have similar palettes, similar ideas. So that helps. Uh, on, on the, you know, the harvesting and just, you know, managing the fermentations. The, the fact that it's truly uh, barrel fermented, I mean, real barrels, and it goes in as juice and ferments in those barrels, half French, half American. Uh, the fact that it's fermenting in the barrel, that, that builds out the mid palate. And then now that you have a barrel fermented wine, and still in the barrel, the leaves mm-hmm. are at the bottom now. Mm-hmm. They're the dead yeast that have fallen down. And we're stirring them, you know, once or twice a month, once a month for sure for the Vintners Reserve. And um, and, and even the low calorie will get uh, leaves stirring because that's so important. And then we let it go through the, the uh, well, the leaves stirring adds that silky essence to the mm-hmm. side of the palate. Right. And then we do the secondary fermentation in the barrel too for the little kiss of butter. So you've got all those things, the great, great aromatics from grape and the, the, the you know, different fruit tones. And then the, you know, subtle oak, subtle vanilla and subtle butter, not, you know, not the kind of butter you get at the movie theater, just a subtle kiss. And then all of that transcends and, and transitions itself into the taste and in your palate and in your mouth and, and that roundness and bigness of ripe grapes and the barrel fermentation fills your mouth uh, with with great um, joy, and then when you you know swallow it, it has a really long, long lingering finish. Mm-hmm. And what happens? A lot of people they don't believe how long that finish is, and so they after that smile and that finish, they say oh, that's impossible, and they have another sip. And <laughs> you know, or 
They say, wow, that is a really nice tasting wine over the long finish. Then a couple sips lead to a glass, a couple of glasses, you know, to a bottle and we Sold. can't take responsibility. Yes. <laughs> I'll take a case. Exactly. And I think I didn't even think about the consistency aspect of the Chardonnay, but you're right. I think for most of us, when we're paying money for a beverage, like a bottle of wine, I want it to be consistent. If that, if it's, if it's the wine that's, if it's my go-to, right. I want it to be consistent right. every single time I open it. Right. Cause if it isn't, or you, you, you're kind of blown away, you're, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to be very happy. It's a 50, 50 chance, whether you're going to be happier or sadder. <laughs> Versus just happy. Exactly. Exactly. Um, we're going to wrap up just a little bit. Oh, nice. Ah, oh, friend. Cheers. I love yes. that. I love that. I was going to ask you when you're not, when you're not um, working or promoting Kendall Jackson, is Chardonnay your all time favorite or do you, is there another wine out there that you just absolutely love? Oh, no, I, well, I would say probably 90% of the wine I drank is Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then follow that with um, Pinot and, okay. and Cab. But I like everything. But I will drink more Chardonnay than anything else for sure. I always say I don't discriminate. I like them all. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I like all of them. Good. Um, we're going to get to the final three. But first, I wanted to ask you, since you have been at KJ for about 30 years now, what have you seen in those three decades that – Again, this is such a familiar label and name and wine. What have you seen over the last few decades that really changing positively for this company? For the company, or for this particular wine, all of it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you've seen a lot of changes, I'm sure. Yeah, I have, and I think one of the biggest changes was actually shortly after I started uh, the the wine. This particular wine was only sixty percent barrel fermented, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a hundred percent Chardonnay. It was like 60, it, it, it was not 100% barrel from it. It was only 60% and, the, and it was 93 to 97% Chardonnay. So when I took over, just well, we each challenged each other. He challenged me to make it 100% Chardonnay and I challenged him to get the barrel fermentation percent up you know, more towards 90, 95 or even 100. And uh, I accepted his challenge, of course I didn't have a choice, and he, and he he accepted mine uh, to the point of running out buying a boatload of more barrels. So mm-hmm. he loved the fact of you know more barrel fermentations, and you know maintaining. We don't have a lot of new oak in here; it's very low, but it's more just that effect of the barrel fermentation. He fell in love with that, and um, that was a huge a huge change. And then I was scared to death because he wanted it to go to 100% Chardonnay. And, and so, you know, there was maybe like a little 1% Riesling or, you know, something along those lines or Gewurz in there. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Well, when in Chardonnay, that, you know, that is a, a, uh, a single variety, but you can subdivide out Chardonnay and get different clones, you know, and clone fours like the workhorse, you know, great flavors everywhere. You can really, you know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, well, you know exactly what's going to happen with everything, but it's very, you can count on it. And uh, then you have the Dijon clones, you know, 96, 76, et cetera, et cetera. And they give you sort of the florally uh, tones or perfume tones. And then, and then there's what we call the 
uh, Ruid clones, uh, or, or Ruid, yeah, Ruid clones, and then the and then the purified Ruid clones, which are 809C. Well, those three have like a a uh, a very unique tone, you know, like like a perfume, but very very aromatic, uh, uh, like a Viognier. You know, in fact, if you do a hundred percent pure, which we do from the Seiko Highlands uh, KJ J, J, uh, Vineyard Designate, uh, you have to tell people that this is a, trust me, this is hundred percent Chardonnay because it'll blow your mind. Wow! Say, wow, that that's very unique, <laughs> and so that's what I had to rely on and, and get going in, in a big way. Uh, for the for for those other little nuances that you need and want for Chardonnay, mm. that you get that from the clone, and then you can manage that with your yeast and and your and your malolactic, and then ultimately your barrel toasts. You know how you how you handle the, that part of um, of the barrel program, and 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 time and barrel. So that so it's 100% Chardonnay guaranteed. Ever since that 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 one day, you know. I, Took him on. He was happy. We're all happy. Everybody's happy. Um, yep. You're not. You're not passionate about this at all, whatsoever. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, there's something about there's something about not only your job, but it sounds like this company that I mean, you've again 30 years, sir. That's you love it, obviously. Right. And we're only 40 years old, so no, it's a family-run, family-owned company, and it is. It is more than that. I mean, the family, when you work with this company, with this family, you become part of the family, you know, literally. And, and they treat everyone like that. You know, very, it's, it's, it's hard to, it almost brings tears to my eyes you know, to be thinking about this and saying it, but it's pretty intense and uh, family run, family owned and, and, and very special. Hmm. There's so many examples I don't even want to go into that would, you know, bring tears to your eyes of what, they've done for folks. I love it. Um, all right, sir, we're going to wrap up and get to the final three. And I will say, it sounds like you're lucky to have them. They're lucky to have you. Yeah. Well, let's just say I'm lucky to be with them. (laughs) Amazing. Okay. Best advice you've ever been given. Best advice. Um, well, try to know the answer to the question before the question is asked. (laughs) good predicting that's good yeah it's uh, like always being prepared right aka that yes yeah Yeah. every way you can imagine i feel like i may know this answer but what's your happy place my happy place wow i don't know six looking off on the uh, on a beautiful beach with a glass of chardonnay in hand and or uh, looking at a beautiful ski area and ski run with a glass of Chardonnay in hand. Okay. I had a feeling. I knew it. Um, and then in all things food and drink, what do you crave? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's great because I'm really craving it right now. And I'm going to have to wait like two months, uh, apparently. So in the in November 15th-ish in Sonoma County mm-hmm. is when the crab scene Dungeness crab season normally opens. They've postponed it until December, and now they've postponed it into January uh, for various reasons. But Dungeness crab fresh with Kendall Jackson, Vintners Reserve Chardonnay, and maybe a little loaf of sort of French baguette and some creamy cheese. That's heavenly. 
Oh, that sounds amazing. You know, we have, we have crab up here in Oregon. You can come anytime. Okay. We I have... may take you up on it. This <laughs> <laughs> is the season for crab and there's no crab to be had. So. I know. I know. Yeah. We got to be patient. We got to be patient. See you Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, thank you so much for joining me today. And again, congratulations on being named American wine legend by wine enthusiasts, their wine star awards. Obviously after chatting with you for the last 55 minutes, obviously well-deserved honor. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time. And, and I'm happy I could you know help and answer all your questions and I'm always available 24 seven. I feel like you have lots more stories up your sleeve so oh, yeah. maybe maybe when we, we shut down, I'll stop recording. I'll come visit you at Kendall Jackson. We'll have some Chardonnay. Then you can tell me the good stuff. I would appreciate that and look forward to it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Glose. Today's episode sponsored by Tap and Vine 559, the place to eat, meat, and drink in Southern Oregon. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.